Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, September 3rd, 2021. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is Glenn Hubbard, who's a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Glenn, how are you today? Great, Tony. How are you? Doing well, doing well. So Glenn, last time we talked about monetary policy and we advertised the fact that Fed Chair Jerome Powell was about to give a talk at the Kansas City Fed's annual Jackson Hole Wyoming meeting. And as you know, Fed chairs often use that meeting to give a summary of how they think the economy is doing and um, their thoughts about future monetary policy or that part of their thoughts that they're willing to tell us about. So he gave that. And um, so that's one development that's that took place since we, we last talked. The other is this morning, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released their employment report, their monthly employment report. This would be for employment in August. And the consensus, according to the people who compile these consensus forecasts, had been a net increase of about 750,000 jobs. And we actually got much less than that, about 235,000, a big decline from the previous month, from July, when we had over a million. So let me ask you, with those two things, what Powell had to say, and of course, Powell talked before we got that jobs report, and the jobs report, have you changed your thoughts any on monetary policy, what we're likely to see the Fed do, uh, the state of the macroeconomy, any of those things? Uh, it's a great question, Tony. I don't really think so. You know, when Chair Powell gave his remarks, you know, instead of the beautiful backdrop of Jackson Lake, it's all Zoom this year. Right. So basically, he just uh, on an official Zoom screen. And I think he gave both proponents and opponents of his view something. You know, for proponents of his view, he outlined his case. You know, he said, we're, we're going to wait for substantial pro, uh, further progress. I think were the words that he used. For opponents, he made the case that uh, he's on the, the case of inflation being a real possibility and tapering would happen. Uh, I took from the speech that the Fed really is still quite focused on aggregate demand and maintaining aggregate demand uh, without as clear a path for tapering as one would like. Since quantitative easing is, by definition, if, if it has an effect, it's through aggregate demand. It would be lowering long-term interest rates and interest-sensitive spending. Given that that's not the constraint in the economy, I think it's still a little baffling. And, and that brings to your question about the employment report. So, of course, in the employment report, if there's a jobs miss, you know, the as I was just telling my students today, the two words that brings tears to every economist's eyes are supply and demand. So there's labor supply and labor demand. And what the Fed has been helping along is the recovery in labor demand. But in labor supply, COVID, of course, and the Delta variant uh, had gotten in the way. So is that a temporary interruption, given that most public health officials think uh, the Delta variant will be working itself out in the very near future? If that's the case, the labor market could actually be quite tight, and we could see that employment uh, turn around fairly quickly. 
So I, I think that the Fed is, is staying the course. Uh, I personally have a lot of questions about that course, but they're certainly staying it. And I don't know that the employment report is so much of a surprise, uh, you know, given the, the Delta variant and the labor supply problem. I don't know, what, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that he gave a good summary of the Fed's position. In fact, we'll put a link when we post this podcast to the blog so that students and instructors can, can take a look at it. I, it's pretty much non-technical, and he does talk about the reasons why he thinks or the Fed thinks that the inflation that we've been experiencing this summer is transitory and basically because he, he sees it as confined to just a few sectors, you know, used car prices have shot through the roof and so on, but he doesn't see it as spreading generally through the economy. He also talks about expectations as we, we discussed last time we talk about in the book that one of the things that people who are most critical of Fed policy are worried about is is the Fed acting in such a way, and are we experiencing enough inflation that that you know workers and households and firms and investors are all going to say, well, you know, I, I don't think we're going to get two percent inflation, which is the Fed's target. I think maybe we'll get three or four or more. And he uh, discusses reasons why he doesn't think that that's going to happen. And uh, it's interesting, I think, to look through that because of various measures of expectations that we have. So you mentioned the taper. And one of the things I thought was interesting in his talk is that if you think of those sort of two pieces of the expansionary policy that we've been experiencing, there's the quantitative easing you mentioned, the, which of course is monthly purchases of um, treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. And um, you know, as you, as you say, the Rationale there is typically you want to drive down those prices so you know, mortgage interest rates are lower and firms can borrow more, more cheaply to build new factories and whatever. So that's one part of it. The other part is the target for the federal funds rate, which of course has been zero. And um, so the question then is if we're going to move towards a more normal policy, both those things have to change. And he echoed what other members of the Federal Open Market Committee have said, and that is that they will taper, just the word, really reduce the amount of bonds that they're buying sometime by the end of the year. And of course, we're September, so you know the end of the year is not that far away. And But the other thing I, I thought was interesting is he, he really didn't talk about, even hint at, when they might be inclined to raise their target for the federal funds rate. There have been other members of the Federal Open Market Committee who said, well, probably next year in, in 2022, but he, uh, he kept it really quite open-ended, which leads me to another question I wanted to ask you. And that is that in the talk, he mentions that, the, that you know, inflation, there, of course, they have the dual mandate, as we discuss in the, in the textbook, price stability and maximum employment. That's the, the marching orders Congress has given the Fed. And he was feeling good about the, the price stability part, but said, well, you know, we still have, have progress we need to make on maximum employment. So that then raises the question of how do we know 
when we have reached maximum employment? What measures of the labor market should we be looking at? When, when will the Fed be able to say, okay, we've, we've hit that goal as well. Uh, maximum employment has been achieved and things are looking fine. I think that's a hard question. I would break it into two parts. You know, the first, as I was mentioning before, the focus on the Delta variant of COVID in the labor market means that for current and recent job market participants, the uh, interruption from COVID has uh, disrupted the labor market. But I think the Fed is going deeper. I think the Fed would actually like to bring back some of the lost labor force participation rate. The labor force participation rate fell off dramatically during the financial crisis. It recovered a little bit, but but not very much. Uh, Part of the declines, of course, economists have forecasted for years, they're about demography and aging, but a lot of it is not that. Even in so-called prime age workers, there were big declines after the financial crisis that haven't recovered. The Fed has been pushing labor force participation generally, and also among uh, uh, minority groups and lower income groups in the population, all worthy social objectives. The question of course is, is monetary policy the principal way to do that as opposed to other policy measures? And that's where I think the worry is that the Fed could push so hard uh, on the gas to do that, that may well be inflationary as opposed to more targeted fiscal policy. But the Fed hasn't really been clear other than Chair Powell's words about, you know, he hasn't seen uh, enough substantial further progress. Well, I'm not really sure what that means. Right, right. Yeah, it's, we talked some in the book, and I think we've talked in podcasts that the Fed seemed to be shifting its emphasis from the unemployment rate, which is probably the measure most people are familiar with as the best measure of how the labor market's doing to, as you say, labor force participation or maybe employment the population, but hasn't been too concrete about that. And one of the things that is interesting is that if you look at the, um, the Federal Open Market Committee, they do have these projections of various economic variables. So each member comes up with projections of what he or she thinks is gonna to happen to inflation and growth in real GDP and unemployment and then those, those get published and they get adjusted usually a couple times a year, but they don't publish forecasts of these other measures. So it makes it a little tricky if they are moving away from the unemployment rate, but that's the only labor market measure that they actually are telling you what, they, what their target is. Well, it makes it a little hard to evaluate um, exactly um, when they'll be able to say, well, our, our work here in the labor market is done for a while. We, we've reached that, that maximum employment. So I thought maybe we could turn to a related point. You were, of course, co-chair with Donald Cohn of the Task Force on Financial Stability that was convened by the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. And Cohn, of course, served, among other positions, as, as vice chair of the Fed's Board of Governors from 2010 to 2015. We did uh, already post to the blog the opinion column that you and Donald Cohn wrote summarizing um, the results of the the task force's work. But maybe we could go into that a little bit in the podcast. I don't think we talked about it in the podcast. 
And maybe we could keep it at a, at least begin at a very uh, basic level. So what do we even mean when, when we talk about, when economists and policymakers talk about financial stability? What is it that um, they mean by that? And why is it that we think that the federal government needs to intervene? Because I mean, we have this sort of background assumption that we talk about in the book when we're talking about markets, that if you and I make a deal, if you come into my restaurant and I give you a, sell you a, a, a plate of spaghetti, we assume I'm better off or I wouldn't have sold you the spaghetti at that price and you're better off, you wouldn't have bought it. And so the government really can't improve that transaction, we're both better off. So what makes it different if what you and I are doing is not buying and selling plates of spaghetti, but we're buying and selling bonds or I'm lending you money or, or something having to do with the financial system? What makes it different that we think the Fed, that the federal government should intervene? Well, it's a great question, Tony. And our group started its work actually in 2019 when I think people thought we were insane, everything was perfect. Markets were great. The economy was white hot. Why are we talking about financial stability? The, the financial crisis was in the rearview mirror. We had uh, chosen to look, say, about 10 years after Dodd-Frank just to see if there was any exposure. And in the U.S., while people think about banks as typical financial intermediaries of moving money between savers and borrowers, Actually, non-bank intermediation, which has been growing for a long time, has exploded since the financial crisis, and we wanted to take a look there. Uh, the spaghetti example shows why we ought to care. You know, when you sell me the spaghetti, there are no externalities there. No one else is in that transaction other than you and me. And if I like the spaghetti, I'll go back, or I'll say nice things to you, or maybe I'll go on Yelp if I didn't like your spaghetti. But there's no real externality. The problem in the financial sector is that there are means, and we saw this during the financial crisis, where we can have rapid deleveraging, fire sales of assets, and individuals and institutions that had nothing to do with the original transactions take enormous losses in wealth. And that, of course, is what happened in the, in the financial crisis. Financial stability really means, is our financial system resilient enough to deliver basic financial intermediation, matching savers and borrowers, like we could talk about in principles or a money and banking type text, and provide the kind of risk sharing and liquidity and information services a market needs and requires. Uh, if it's not resilient, if shocks disturb that and move it off that path, uh, that's a problem. Now, how government could step in, possibly it's regulation, Dodd-Frank was an example of that. It can be the central bank stepping in if there are fire sales of an asset that's otherwise good. The central bank has the unlimited ability to print cash. Remember that in March of 2020, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, there was a panic in the treasury market. So we're not talking about some market that has credit risk and, and all these troubles. And the Fed had to step in at a massive scale. And if you peek under the hood, part of that was regulation discouraging banks from being able to participate. Uh, part of it were the actions of foreign central banks and hedge funds. And if we're going to need the Fed to step in, which it had to do in September of 2019, and again in March of 2020, 
maybe we should start thinking about fed backstop facilities and how to charge for those facilities and there's access for those facilities. So that's part of the work that our committee did. Let, let's try to go through and figure out, are there things like the treasury market where there are issues? It's also the case that our regulatory process is broken. There's no real way to coordinate across, let's say the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Federal Reserve and the banking regulators. There are committees that bring them together like the Financial Stability Oversight Committee, but no real way to gather the information to present a clear picture. So we talk about that as well, but financial stability should be very much on our mind. It's also a corollary of the first conversation we had today, which is that a very accommodated monetary policy raises the question of showing up possibly in price inflation, which is what we were talking about, but it could also show up in asset price inflation and financial stability risks, and we need to be on top of it. Yeah, that 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 is interesting. We'll put a, a link on the blog to the whole report with maybe a little um, reader warning that, that some of it yeah, gets caution. It may be boring <laughs> and technical. Yeah. But one thing I I didn't quite get, and um, maybe I missed it. You, you the committee goes the task force goes through um, a lot of different aspects of the financial system and suggests ways in which it could be made more resilient. The stock, so we, we don't experience a financial crisis. I wasn't sure whether um, this would involve Congress passing, say, different pieces of legislation, or maybe some of it being the existing regula financial regulatory agencies like the, the Fed and others uh, changing some of their practices. Or did you think you mentioned Dodd-Frank, which of course was the the legislation that was passed in 2010 by Congress uh, during the Obama administration in reaction to what they saw some of the problems of the 2008 financial crisis. Did the task force have in mind that there might be another big piece of legislation like that that would simultaneously address a lot of these different problems that you'd identified? No, we didn't. In fact, at the beginning, we almost restricted ourselves to ask what was very incremental. I, I say the obvious that the Congress doesn't play well together and produce big pieces of legislation on anything. Uh, but we did in our task force report group recommendations into things that could be solved in the existing regulatory process. And Secretary Yellen and SEC Chair Gensler and others are quite interested in many of those recommendations. I think they can happen. Some do require Congress. You know, we've certainly been trying to do congressional briefings, but I think it would be naive to think Congress is going to accomplish a major change in financial regulation, however good or bad that, that might be. So I think what we've really identified is here are the problem areas. Here's what we think could blow up and we'll come back to look at it then. Or we could try to fix at least the process problems that regulation can address today. Yeah, I had one last related question about this, and just to sort of play devil's advocate, you sometimes hear people say that there are a lot of different problems in different aspects of the financial system, and the, the task force lays them out very well. But we had two big shocks to the system in 2008, and the market for subprime mortgages crashed and took a lot of the financial system with it. And then last March, when COVID appeared and suddenly 
everybody realized that it was going to be a big thing and there were panics in different parts of the financial system. But in both cases, the Fed kind of rode to the rescue and somewhat slowly feeling their way in, in 2008, but pretty quickly at last March, mainly probably because they had uh, the experience of 2008, 2009 to draw upon. So what do you say um, to people who say, well, you know, it's all well and good. We could make these changes to the regulatory system, but can't we just rely on the Fed to ride to the rescue if we ever have uh, another crisis? Well, we'll always need the central bank to do its classic and most basic function, which is to be a lender of last resort, all true. Having said that, we would also like to make sure we don't have as many fires uh, for the Fed to fight. And when the Fed does have to step in in a very big way, uh, A, it may or may not get it right. You mentioned that the past episode was rapid. The Fed was quite lumbering during the financial crisis. Eventually it got there, but it took some, uh, it took some time. Uh, and of course, there are potential moral hazard concerns about knowing that the Fed is effectively putting a put under any uh, transaction uh, and it draws the Fed into politics. So I, I think the Fed would actually like not to be in, in this business as much. And that's why we think if there's a standing facility, we need a way to uh, charge for it, to have it be clear who has access and, and who doesn't. But we obviously always need the Fed after the fact if there's a really bad problem that requires attention. For example, the market for treasuries, which is supposed to be the default risk-free underpinning of the entire global financial system. Okay, great. Okay. Glenn, that was very interesting. And as I mentioned, uh, we'll put some of the relevant links onto the blog along with this podcast so listeners can follow up if they would like and learn a little bit more. So just a reminder to listeners, this podcast is available on iTunes. So if you like, you can subscribe, make it part of your podcast feed. You can even leave us a review. Please also keep checking our blog at Hubbard O'Brien Economics, all one word, Dot com, where we periodically post new content. You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard O'Brien Economics podcast. We'll see you next time.